Welcome to The Guidepost, a podcast from the William Winter Institute for Racial Reconciliation. I'm Vaughn Gordon. Our guest today is Dr. Dominica Perry, President and CEO of 2C Mississippi, an organization devoted to climate change education and the notion that sustainable communities not only benefit from the environment, but also attract business and grow local economies. Dominica is an environmental economist, professionally and personally passionate about climate change. Dr. Perry established 2C Mississippi to promote a bipartisan science-based dialogue and action on climate change in Mississippi. Dominica received her PhD in 2003 from Yale University. She's a native of Poland, but after 25 years of moving across the U.S., she and her family chose Mississippi as their forever home. She lives in Ridgeland with her two sons, husband, two dogs, nine fish, and a hermit crab, and an occasional toad. Dr. Perry, thank you for being with us today for the podcast. We are really excited about this. As uh, my colleagues and I have said, we don't, we're new to podcasting, but we have a lot of experience with dialogue. So I'm quite comfortable in, in conversation. Uh, we have the privilege of, of knowing each other from our youth engagement work. So again, we're really excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Extremely grateful that you guys are interested in this conversation, conversation about climate change that I find most important. I love Winters Institute and your work, so I'm honored to be here. We appreciate that. One of your kind of key roles is that you were founder, president, and CEO of 2C Mississippi. Uh, That's a really interesting name. If you don't mind, tell us a little bit about where that came from and, and the significance of it. The name 2C Mississippi, in a way, was meant to be slightly confusing or intriguing, so you can ask me what it means. And then I can tell you that it stands for 2 degree Celsius Mississippi. 2 degree Celsius is the threshold that Paris Agreement set as one that we should stay under. We should not warm up the globe higher than two degrees Celsius. Recent studies are showing that this threshold may be even lower, maybe 1.5. But then I thought 1.5 C Mississippi would be too difficult, so I stuck with 2 C Mississippi. (laughs) So you've developed, as a part of the organization, a curriculum for middle school students. It is phenomenal. To have, Thank you know, you. I've had the opportunity to go through it. I felt like I learned probably three or four years worth of information <laughs> and just skimming. it. Uh, and I had the opportunity to do that last summer before a lot of things that have happened this year you know, happened. Talk a little bit about that curriculum, what the impetus for it was and how you feel about where it's going, the penetration it's getting. I started this organization to see Mississippi to do two things. One is education and the other one is supporting climate action in a non-political, bipartisan way. The educational element came naturally to me because in my previous life, I was in academia. As, as I say, I'm a recovering academic. Teaching people was pretty natural, but the way it was working in Mississippi was telling me that there is something missing. Mm-hmm. Once you start talking to adults, even college students, they already have their political views set. And those political views, strangely, affect entire conversation about climate change. If you have people who vote Republican, you will have to start convincing them that this is a real thing. And these are hard conversations. And you spend a huge amount of 
effort and emotions and time doing so. So how can you educate in a more effective way that an hour of effort translates into much more than talking to denialists about climate? Mm-hmm. And natural way of searching about it would be to say, where can I find people without political preferences? That's hard. And an obvious answer is young people before the political views are formed. So this is K through 12. One may say you try to educate children where by the time they can vote and make decisions, we're going to be way underwater. That's true. What I've been thinking a lot about is how other similar, extremely controversial topics been gain traction in societies. And one obvious one is the smoking campaign. Mm-hmm. The smoking campaign and smoking industry have been bringing doubts that this is a harmful activity. But the tipping point, the threshold, occurred around the time when people started talking, teachers started talking about it at schools mm-hmm. and bringing in materials. Children were learning that this is something that is very dangerous, coming home and talking about it with parents. And this trickle-down effect, an actual trickle-down effect, have been often cited as the main shift, the main reason for the shift that occurred. So if we can do the same about climate, we can start talking about climate change with children and then present them with facts that then they can share with their parents, with their friends, with colleagues of their parents. That is a potential impact that could be meaningful. So I'm, I'm a Delta boy, Dr. Perry. And as I said to you before, I was really blessed to turn 40 not that long ago, but I grew up in Sunflower County. And when I'm back in the Delta, I often tell my friends or even my family that it just feels a lot hotter than it did when we were kids playing, you know, sometimes barefoot, sometimes not. But it just feels hotter than it did then. Am I wrong? Uh, oh, you is are it not wrong. hotter? Or, okay, so I'm not correct. It's getting hotter. Yes, and it's going to get even hotter. Right now, on average, the globe warmed up about one degree Celsius. So we are halfway through the threshold or even closer to it. And as the whole globe is warming up, the heat gets distributed throughout different parts of the world through oceans and air, and there are different effects in different parts of the world. Most of the places, and Mississippi is one of them, is warming up, and we have data that shows it, and is the same trend as the global trend. And the global trend is kind of scary. Let me just quote that five warmest years within last century, plus the 20 years of this century, occurred since 2015. Mm-hmm. then nine of the 10 warmest years have occurred since 2005. Nine of the 10. Yes. Wow. We are, every year is another record that we break and we break and we break. And this is a very steep growing curve. What this means for us is, for Mississippi specifically, there are some numbers that calculate right now. We have in the city of Jackson, specifically Hines County, we have up to 47 days with temperatures over 95 degrees. That doesn't include humidity, and humidity really matters Mm -hmm. in terms of how it feels. So most of that probably remember how 95 feels. It feels awful. Mm -hmm. In addition to feeling awful, the 95 degree and upper is the temperature where human body can't naturally cool off, and it's actually Mm -hmm. potentially fatal. The increase that is being predicted by NOAA is by 2030, In Jackson, we will have 58 of those days. By 2090, we will have 115. We will have over three months of over 95 degrees. In comparison, San Diego, by 2090, 210 days of over 95 degrees. With our climate, put humidity on it. 
and we are hundreds of Fahrenheit. It's like a blinking red sign. Yes. <laughs> yes. Hanging over us. Yes. So you mentioned kind of the, the denialism. And in our work, we think it's really important to assume uh, the best about people. There are the world's full of good people is one of the best diversity and inclusion consultants in the South says there, there are lots of good people in the world, just some of them have bad information. So where do you, you've quoted some really, as I said, scary statistics. How do you vet the sources of information uh, that you use? And what advice would you give to the parents of those young people who are getting to experience the curriculum in their classroom? What insights would you give them on how, how to find good sources of information and, and how to test them? I think this would be Two different approaches. One is, since I'm a technical climate person, uh, I do refer a lot to published articles. And even within that domain, you have to be very careful. Right now, there are lots of journals where you can publish if you pay. So you can basically Mm. publish anything. But there are always, within each discipline, there are core three to five journals that are of highest quality, where publication goes through a very, very uh, rigorous system of reviews And once it's published, it is really scientifically viable. I look through those top journals for information, for everyday consumers of information. Some of those are way too technical and just a waste of time. But there are two journals that are made to publish very important research results about most important topics in a way that is short, concise, and applicable and digestible by lay audience. Mm -hmm. That's Journal of Science and the Journal of Nature. And there are several extremely important articles that came up there, and you can just read them like you read a newspaper and you really can follow. Then there are also online web pages that give you information from research institutions. Some of them, again, are very technical, but some of them have special pages which are to communicate with regular folks. Mm-hmm. So NOAA and NASA are both extremely good sources of information and lots of visuals, which mm-hmm. I find is very important sometimes, especially for young people. Frankly, I am definitely not young and I really enjoy maps <laughs> and color presentation. It stays with you longer. Mm-hmm. So the Journal of Science and the Journal of Nature are two of those. I I made note of those myself. In your experience with these middle school students who are kind of in the middle of learning through the curriculum, what are some of the ways that you see their maybe young skepticism or what are some of the ways you see the knowledge, the content kind of come alive? Like where where do you see it click for them? The way I assume that even technically middle schoolers should not have political preferences. Some of it rubs off from home and they probably have heard things, not many of them, but some of them probably have heard the nihilistic arguments already. So uh, rather than waiting for the teacher to go through a whole lesson and then be asked one of those questions and struggle to answer it, the whole curriculum is designed to address all of those right away in the way we present the lesson. So it's volcanoes, it's a geological scale, all sorts of unusual (laughs) non-scientific hypotheses. We bring in the evidence that shows what happens over time with temperatures within hundreds and thousands of years. We cite where that data comes from, from ice cores. We show the graphs and we ask the students themselves to draw conclusions. So by the time that lesson ends, I've never encountered and none of the teachers that I've worked with heard children could be confused about what that all means, but they don't bring in that argument again, because it's right away 
explain at their level why it doesn't make any sense. What is extremely satisfying for people like me is to work with children because they come in sometimes with some preconceived notions, but it's a small percentage. Usually they just come curious. And after you talk to them, they actually get it. They actually understand the magnitude of the problem. And they have no problem seeing that this is anthropological, this is anthropogenic, that we cause climate change and we should do something about it. There's this, my favorite experience that I had, I was speaking to a whole middle school. So there were 400 children and I had no idea if they were following what I was saying or not. I was doing my best. And then we ended that presentation and one boy came in and he says, Dr. Pear, I just need to tell you something. I'm going to be the next president. I mean, maybe not the next one because I'm kind of young, but when I grow up, I'm going to be a president. And if this whole mess with fossil fuels is Mm. not resolved by then, I'm banning them. This is ridiculous. I didn't know how bad it was. (laughs) That's a great example uh, of, of how naturally children react to correct scientific information. So what happens to people when they, I don't want to ask a question I know the answer to, but one of the things I've found that's kind of been a little unnerving to me, you talked earlier about you can pay the right price, you can get published uh, with whatever you want. I often thought about the impact of, of kind of the climate warming on the economy, or at least what what has been offered up as kind of solutions or ways that we can mitigate that. The biggest argument has often been, listen, people need to earn a living. And the more we do, the more we regulate the more negative impact we have on the economy. Talk about that. You are an economist. So talk about that. How do we get the best of both worlds uh, in a way that allows us to occupy this one a little bit longer? Yes. To start with that argument, I need to clarify why we have a climate change problem. It's not because they're evil corporations that want to make money and don't care about anybody else. This is the consequence of a problem which is called externalities. That means when we produce whatever we are producing and part of our input is fossil fuel, when we use electricity produced from coal or oil or natural gases, part of the costs is affecting the climate. But the producers don't pay that cost. This is a very rare situation and this is called a market failure. Again, market works very well in very many, very, very many cases, except for a few. One of them is pollution externalities. The other one is monopoly. Think about what monopoly is. Nobody argues with you that monopolistic prices are not okay, and this is a natural consequence of free market, which we need to regulate, which we need to change. The same argument does not seem to uh, be so easily seen and understood with respect to externalities. And there is true to the argument that abandons of incorrect regulations could slow economic growth mm-hmm. and that relying on market forces when it's possible is a better solution than relying on regulations in mm-hmm. certain cases. For climate, what we can actually do very easily, and there are lots of very well-developed mechanisms, is to bring yet market forces to fix market failure if that makes any sense. So the governmental intervention is very, very small. We are not, there are many, many solutions. Many of them are promoted by the recent Nobel Prize winner, Professor Nordhaus, who wrote about carbon pricing. Carbon pricing is bringing in market 
back to fix itself. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, we not only can not ruin the economy, you can actually grow it. There is a huge number of solutions which work as an actual economic stimulus, that after introducing carbon pricing, we can actually have more jobs and we can have higher GDP. In addition to that, the green market is something that is growing. There are green jobs that are booming throughout the country. We don't see it in Mississippi yet, but I'm hoping we will see it very soon. But it is a trend. It is not an argument that is really supported by any data that I've seen. So in terms of the the opportunities here, I mean, Mississippi's got eight relatively large and to at least varying extents thriving public higher education institution. What are some of the things that that you think they can be doing to prepare the next generation of of leaders, uh, thought leaders, and also leaders in the economy to think more intentionally about that economy, transforming the economy in that way? Are there some some simple suggestions you make for them or make to them? Well, so there are two elements to it. Every university could provide better education and could also function as a better institution itself with respect to carbon. All of those institutions can reduce their carbon footprint, can start Mm -hmm. thinking actually about carbon footprint, because I don't want to say any of the Mississippi universities, but most of them don't have mind frame that would require carbon accounting and thinking about reductions. That would be very beneficial in itself. But in addition to that, the primary reason for universities is conducting research and educating. And we need, desperately need, more research that is Mississippi-specific and that is space-specific. These are the arguments that talk to people in a most natural way, rather than talking about what's happening in Africa, if you tell them what's happening in Biloxi, that has a much more emotional impact that people can connect with. Research is one one side of it. The other side is always education. Mm-hmm. We do not teach enough about climate. And we need to do it. If you think about it, hang out with me long enough, you will see that everything is related to climate and affected by climate. And that's how I like to think about ideal ways of thinking about education. Almost every discipline could have a very meaningful course about how climate is affecting that discipline or how and how this discipline can actually support climate solutions. That's a big ask, but perhaps starting with a couple of climate mm-hmm. courses at each higher ed institution in Mississippi would be phenomenal. Thank you. How, how do you engage with policymakers? Are there spaces, if there are no, no spaces, what would a, a good place look like to engage with policymakers? At every level, both yes. from the legislative and state leadership level, yes. but also at the local level. What would it take for them to get in touch with you? What could a conversation look like? After I came to Mississippi, this was the question that I asked myself. What can I do and how, whom shall I talk to, to share what I know and have a conversation? And understand also how they are perceiving the problem and what are the places where we overlap and we can have a conversation. My experience at the state level was very, very frustrating. The state legislation is pretty polarized. Climate change is perceived entirely as a political issue. Everybody who is a Democrat is very willing and interested to talk about it and to stand for it. But of course, with the majority of Republican representatives, action is unlikely and a conversation is even more unlikely. Having that said, without naming names, I've been trying to reach out to people as people. And I've had several conversations with Republican representatives at the state level 
about climate. Again, not mentioning names. There are some, just like in general population, that don't respond to any rational arguments. And this is a conversation that just doesn't go anywhere and there is no need to continue it. But there are some, and it's, it's even more frustrating, there are some that tell me behind closed doors that they all understand that, but they need to get reelected. And they can't stand for climate because that's not going to fly. If I can sell it as conservation, if I can sell it as protecting natural resources, none of it makes sense if you take away the issue of climate change. You can't come up with actual solutions that are effective if you talk about conservation rather than climate change, right? That was my initial experience. And then I moved up to the federal level and I started working with and volunteering for an organization called Citizens Climate Lobby. About four years ago, I started the first chapter here in Mississippi, and now we have seven or eight active chapters. And this is an organization that promotes pricing carbon, that provides, that solution provides an actual economic stimulus. And we talk to representatives at the federal level about that solution. The bigger the area that one solution can be applied in, the more effective it is because it's a global issue, right? So over there, the conversation is different. Again, it's somewhat frustrating when we talk about representatives of Mississippi. Naturally, the only Democrat that that represents us is very supportive and knowledgeable, Mr. Benny Thompson. And on the other side of the aisle, the conversation is frustrating, What we always greatly appreciate is they do talk to us, which is a great step. Often it is just we don't get into enough details. And some of these conversations are not even with the Congress people themselves, but with their staffers. And that's where it gets really interesting. During last lobby day, I've heard from environmental aid to one of our senators. What is the senator's position on climate change? Well, to be honest, I don't know. It never came up. <laughs> that's an interesting response to your question. I mean, for us at the Winter Institute, that speaks to the opportunity for some dialogue. Exactly. It's really important to kind of move some of these conversations to spaces of dialogue rather than spaces of, of debate. Yes. I think I heard enough of what you said to know that there's a standing invitation to anyone who wants to engage in meaningful dialogue about it. I want to move from kind of the grass tops, if you will, to the grassroots, the the local communities here in Mississippi. What are the local conversations looking like? Are you seeing movement and progress around people learning and engaging with the issue at the local level? If there are successes you want to share, please share them. I think those people will be proud to hear it echoed in these spaces. And if there are some challenges to it that you care to get into, Talk to us a little bit about that. My experience with community outreach brought me to write the curriculum. What I've noticed is most people just never been taught anything about climate change, and the, the amount of information that is out there is overwhelming. The conversation needs to start by explaining some basic things, and I do meet with individuals who are, it's a, it's a nasty word, but who are denialists, and that's where the conversation is very short and we just go and have a cup of tea and talk about something else because there's no pain point of wasting time. But there are also a large group of, of people who are interested in the topic but really never been exposed to what this is about. What is the science? What can you do about it? And this is where the most impacts occurs. Sometimes as little as one presentation or one cup of coffee can turn people from 
yeah, of course I care, but I don't know what to do about it, to creating an activist. There is a study at the national level done at Yale Communication Center that analyzes how people respond to information about climate. And there is this one group out of six, it's called Six Americas. So one of the Americas are people who are not engaged in climate conversation. And these are not people who are not engaged because they don't care. They're not engaged because nobody ever tried to engage them. Mm -hmm. This is the potential for a growing dialogue. Because when you start presenting information, people start becoming source of information themselves. They carry it on. They go in. This domino effect I've been observing, I, I go to schools and parents then invite me to other schools and to other organizations and to their own social groups or clubs. And that's how the conversation is growing. Again, there are some cases that are difficult where there are conversations about climate change, especially on the coast, with very progressive groups that are represent minorities that are incredibly frustrated and disengaged because not that they've never tried, but they feel like they keep hitting a wall. And that's also an opportunity for us to figure out how to support them, how to bring their voice to be heard, how to understand what is the angle from which they come from. And these are also with a great potential of making an impact. So right now we're in what many would consider a public health crisis, and I don't say that to be hyperbolic. But what's the impact of climate change on disease and, and sickness and how these things kind of travel the globe? Are there some insights you have for us on, on that? This is a very interesting topic that became a source of lots of research within the last few years, maybe 10 years. We initially were trying to figure out whether carbon dioxide by itself causes problems to human health, and not so much. But what happens is the effect of carbon dioxide, which is the global warming, creates circumstances which are very, very dangerous to human health. These are related to, for example, increased heat and humidity that creates more desirable environment for insects like mosquitoes to thrive, to move into areas where they could not be previously and multiplying numbers of cases where they bring in diseases that they carry. These are vector-borne diseases, and we've already seen huge numbers, increasing numbers in areas we haven't seen before and in areas where we've observed it, multiplication of cases. Some of the data, for example, is dengue fever increased by about 10% since 1950. And this is clearly related to warmer environments. We have also many, many more people exposed to extremely high temperatures, and that causes heat strokes. All the numbers that we get are not as frightening as they should be, because a lot of it is underreported. Uh, we've been looking in the city of Jackson about that data. When it gets over 95 and you don't have an AC and you're an older person or have pre-existing conditions, like with the virus, mm -hmm. you are more vulnerable to to the danger, and many people die. But the way it's being coded is somebody died of stroke, not necessarily a heat stroke. So mm. figuring out what that impact is will probably uncover some potentially huge numbers. You know, as a former high school athlete, I think one of the things that's kind of come into, into clear view recently is the impact of heat. I mean, we would do two-a-day football practices in the summertime and I can't remember, can't really remember taking heat strokes very seriously. Yeah. 
but the University of Maryland, quite a few institutions, and some high schools here in Mississippi, we think have experienced some losses of amazing young people, in part with the temperature being a contributor. Yes. Are you getting people from the schools, from the universities, even curious about the impact? Definitely. This is something that brings the issue of heat strokes to attention. Frankly, even though there are hundreds and thousands of people who work on rooftops and work in the fields who suffer the same consequences and die out of heat strokes and you don't talk about it. So this is a case that is really important for spreading the message and for understanding that heat actually is extremely dangerous. Especially in places like Mississippi, what I've seen is we need to work on understanding how people perceive heat. Many people would say, just like uh, before a hurricane strikes, I've been here for 75 years and always <laughs> been hot. I'm going to be fine. <laughs> Except that 75 years ago, it wasn't as hot as it is right now. Change in people's perception of what heat is, is a very important issue. The ability to withstand Mississippi heat, I think culturally, you know, certainly in some of the spaces I've lived, it's kind of a rite of passage. If, <laughs> if you could endure Mississippi summer, then, you know, you are all right with us, Yep. Uh, so to speak. That's dangerous, though, you're telling me. Well, it is extremely dangerous <laughs> because what does this mean you endure it? You endure it for an hour outside and you come home and you get extremely sick or die. That's a rite of passage to places you don't want to go to. One of the, you know, kind of take the conversation in a little different direction. One of the really important roles that the Winter Institute tries to play in making Mississippi a better, better place is to help people understand what racism is, how oppression across identities, but especially race, has both shaped the society we have now and, and will continue to shape it unless we do some major transformation. What are the implications of race and racism in the way that you're seeing kind of damage done by climate change? Climate change is truly, ultimately, a social justice issue. There's absolutely no question that most vulnerable populations are most hit by climate damages, and they carry the majority of those damages. There is much less options for adaptation. You can't abandon your house and move to the other house that you own. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't sell that house if it's underwater. This is a very, very clear, very well-documented issue with still not well-accepted solution. That's the frustration. What we observe with climate change specifically is there's absolutely no questions that income and race are the driving force of how climate change affects each personal person. What we observe also is there's a lot of research recently that confirms a phenomena called environmental racism. There are cases where uh, there's very, very clear statistical evidence that location of landfills and most polluting harmful production sites is in not just low-income communities, but specifically in African-American and minorities communities. There is clear evidence of that. What gets complicated with climate is there are so many elements in which climate represents itself. We don't have very clear, strong literature evidence that race is a variable that drives it independently of income. But I guess by looking at areas like the Southeast, where we have large populations of African-Americans, and looking where the damages occur, the observational conclusions are pretty obvious. We need to do something about that. And this is a big problem because we come at it from different angles. 
here we have, and throughout the rest of the country, we have great social justice organizations that work on climate justice. And the frustration on my part is that it is so hard to get a dialogue between social justice organizations and the other side of the aisle. To, to be completely honest, it's not always because the right side is being not peaceful. Mm-hmm. So there are some extreme social justice organizations that propose solutions that are so extreme that it keeps us in the status quo, Mm -hmm. that the ideal solution will never be accepted by the right side of the aisle. And then if they don't want to compromise, if they don't want to come a little bit closer toward market-based solutions, we just stay in this perpetual time where people are dying and Mm -hmm. we are going underwater. So it's a very complex issue. I think we should more, we should allow representatives of social justice movement to be heard from here. Mm -hmm. I go to the Northeast and I hear Mm -hmm. all sorts of sometimes really ridiculous statements from, you know, Ivy League educated white kids that make statements not understanding Mm -hmm. how this in practice looks like and what solutions Mm -hmm. could work and could not work at all. Mm -hmm. One of my goals would be also to figure out how to elevate the voice of social justice groups Mm -hmm. from the South, from Mississippi, and engage them in dialogue with people who actually have the power to make a change. Well, I think we benefit tremendously if we could do that around a a whole lot of issues. You used a phrase a minute ago, underwater. So we are recording not very far from the banks of the Pearl River. Some of us living here in the Jackson area and also some areas south of Jackson, like Monticello and other places, we got a whole lot closer to the Pearl River than than we want it to be. How is that impacted by climate change? Is that fair to say that that it is a contributing factor? How much is too much or how much is not enough? What's the truth there from your perspective? It's hard to say what the truth is. We can't show it numerically, but what we've observed is this. We have extreme events like extreme flooding, very intense rains that have been occurring recently much more frequently. So there's a higher frequency and higher intensity of those events. When the rain comes, it comes in much larger volume than it used to, and it happens much more frequently. Do floods, are floods caused by climate change? No, we don't have evidence that could say it in that way, the same way as climate change does not cause hurricanes. Are they magnified by climate change? Absolutely. Climate change in general is, there is this expression, threat multiplier. Most threats that are threats to human health, economies, ecosystems, in the presence of climate change become much, much more dangerous. So what we've seen with Pearl River, what we've seen on and off with Mississippi River that gets flooded and then extremely dry and then flooded again, these are all cases of events that should happen once every 100 years. And now those 100 years events happen very frequently, mm-hmm. there is definitely an impact of warmer climates, and it affects both flooding from freshwater, from rivers uh, that is caused by extra precipitation, uh, as well as sea level rise and encroachment on the shore ecosystems, but also human habitats. Largest cities uh, in America, 40% of people live on a shore in the United States. So sea level rise is not just some issue of losing your summer house or having a more narrow beach. This is an actual economic and extremely important social issue. And you have to think about what that means, right? When 
when cities go underwater, where do people go? Migration is another huge issue that should not be really uh, taken lightly. We are getting very nervous over foreigners coming in to this country because they want a better life. Let's wait until climate forces people to, to run for their lives. And that's where the migration is going to become. You're seeing migration patterns increase. You, yes, you we already have very clear evidence. More. We already started talking, not we as I, but United Nations is discussing redefining what a refugee is. This is what is very important from a legal point of view, because we observe climate refugees. These are people who need to move from where they are, not purely because of economic reasons, but that economic reason is related to climate change. We just recently, I had some data here, we've seen people moving from Guatemala and Honduras because they are trying to cross our southern border looking for jobs because their livelihood disappeared along with coffee production. Because of climate change, it's get hotter there and actually drier the coffee beans don't grow the same way as they used to. They lose their jobs and they try to find different ways of supporting themselves. And this is just tipped off the iceberg. Uh, we predict that by the end of the uh, century, most African countries are going to lose about 50% of their agricultural production. And if you think about what that means, wow. these countries already can't feed themselves. So if we cut their agricultural production by half, this is going to be an uninhabitable area. Sure. Uh, so imagine what happens when an entire continent needs to be evacuated. Mm. Where would those people go? The planning that we need to keep in mind on one hand and on the other hand, there is still time to, to prevent some of those changes. To the extent that we have to have some of this work we can't complete in our lifetimes, I want to come back to the, the work that you're doing with the curriculum. For educators or community members who think that this is something that they need in their community? How can they, they get in touch with you? Uh, what do they need? I mean, what, what do you need if you are a school leader or a district leader who's interested in getting this curriculum into your classroom? A phone would do. You give me a call. <laughs> An email would be also mm -hmm. useful. Mm -hmm. So if you contact 2C Mississippi, if you type in 2C Mississippi to your Google, our webpage is coming up and there are ways, there's phone numbers and email addresses. The simplest email address is 2CMississippi at gmail.com. And we come in with curriculum. We offer training for teachers because this material is something most science teachers are actually not familiar with. So we are happy to train them in how to do that and how to implement it. We bring all the equipment that they would need. All The whole curriculum is designed to be, could be adopted to very, very low um, income communities and schools. A lot of the stuff we can get at Dollar Tree, but we bring it in. So that's not an issue. We train them. We provide them with CEUs, continuous education mm -hmm. units. That is really important for teachers. And then I always tell them that once they go through that training, they become part of the family. So they can call mm -hmm. me anytime. And there have been many cases where I would go and help them teach a course or come and give a big presentation or help with individual projects or go over certain materials that they didn't entirely understand mm -hmm. over the phone. Mm -hmm. The more people would be interested in this curriculum, the, the happier we would be. It's all for free. We do our best to support financially the efforts that they are undertaking because it's so important. So, Dr. Perry, you mentioned the sea level rise and, and its impact on the coast. You know, we, we've got our own very precious piece of, of Mississippi Gulf Coast that is 
you know, heavily populated, some incredible people in economy and culture down there. Are you having much success with conversations or people reaching out to you from down on our Gulf Coast and, and really in any other local communities in Mississippi? So the Gulf Coast is definitely central element uh, of where help needs to come. Sea level is rising more than in other parts of the world. Uh, if we do nothing, the minimum that we for sure will have is three feet. For the Gulf Coast, it's four. We are already in a disadvantaged position. We have lots of disadvantaged communities there. They can't pick up and move. They can't sell their houses because the houses are going underwater. And everybody, including decision makers, sees the effects. The frustration is the conversation does not translate into a climate change issue. It's a natural sea fluctuation. Sea have always been rising and then been falling. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing to do because it's all natural. And that's what is really hard. On the other hand, in a place that is probably less obvious for climate action, we've had a lot of success with the city of Jackson. The current administration has been very, very interested in anything climate-related. Right now, we are working on creating a task force, which is about to be announced literally any minute, which is a group of individuals and organizations from the state and nationally who will be working on different projects that are actual climate action. These would be ranging from getting solar panels on municipal buildings, making them more energy efficient, to creating municipal plan for heat preparedness. We actually mm -hmm. just got financed, the city got financed for uh, creating such plan and for getting support from the National League of Cities. We're going to have a plan that would involve informing people that heat is dangerous, mm -hmm. telling them where to go, and if they can't go, taking them there. We are working with NOAA, and please keep your fingers crossed, because we just applied for a grant, the city applied for the grant, to map the distribution of heat within the city. And this is very much an important element for understanding the socioeconomic element in, in here. This is a study that's been developed for research purposes in Richmond, Virginia, then been applied in D.C. and Baltimore. And now NOAA is interested in actually bringing it in to communities that could use the input not just for research, but for, for planning and action. So this fits so well with our efforts to, to understand where people are going to be in the highest risk. We know that within a city, there are cases of what's called urban heat islands, mm -hmm. which are areas that could be up to eight degrees hotter than other places within the same city. What would make a, what, what makes, contributes What that, makes the difference is canopy coverage. If you have mm -hmm. places that have no trees and only buildings and sidewalks, the heat keeps sort of bouncing mm -hmm. off. It, it stays there much longer and that it keeps reheating a close circle. Mm. Of course, if you look at the data from those cities where the study been conducted, this is entirely related to income and race. Mm -hmm. And so getting that map, heat map of actual heat, would be incredibly useful for arguments to conduct projects with the heat preparedness emergency plan, but also with city design to plant more trees, to have cooling stations mm -hmm. where they are needed. There are lots of not that expensive solutions. We're going to be working on bringing in 
community solar mm -hmm. to low-income communities as well. And the city is very interested in supporting us and possibly giving land where the solar panels could be located. We are going to be counting carbon and we're going to be mm -hmm. saying what actual impact the city is making by the policies that it's introducing. Eventually, I'd like to also see more projects on adaptation. Mm -hmm. So the flood that we've been talking about is a huge issue that's been discussed over and over again in here. Mm -hmm. Shall we have one lake or two lakes two or lakes. five lakes? This is all based on a really, from a global point of view, an old idea of building more dams as a flood control solution, which been lately proven to be the opposite of what we should be doing. We should mm -hmm. be working with water. And there are environmental designs providing natural flood control that is much more effective and predictable. Potentially, the efforts of the city could extend also toward redesigning flood control systems here and including the more natural ways. Well, I absolutely hope it becomes a, a model based in success. We will keep our fingers crossed in the, the project with NOAA. I know you'll be waiting on a phone call of some folks from the Gulf Coast to start a task force. So. Absolutely. Now, once we figure out how to set up those solutions, we can go to any city, any community, and replicate it. And this is what we are hoping for, that this is going to be a domino effect. Dr. Dominique Perry, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast here today. This has been a fascinating conversation for me. I've, I've learned a lot, as I always do when I talk to you. I think it's important for our listeners to know that you bring a very important voice to this conversation, some incredible information. And I'd just like to encourage people to not be afraid to engage in conversation locally to reach out to you, to take a look at the, the resources you offered up here, as well as those that you do on the site. And I think we'll make things a lot cooler. Thank you very much, Dr. Thank Perry. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank Dr. Dominique Perry for being our guest on the podcast today. A link to 2C Mississippi can be found in the show notes. This episode of the podcast was edited by Brian Stauffer and produced by Todd Stauffer. For all my colleagues here at the William Winter Institute for Racial Reconciliation, I'm Vaughn Gordon. Thanks for listening.